Again, last week we began this new series in, in uh, the Minor Prophets. We're spending 10 weeks in the book of Micah, covering it in, 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 uh, in depth. And then a few weeks in between, kind of interspersed, we'll be looking at other Minor Prophet books. One, one book per sermon for those five. All right, You'll, We'll begin to see that next week when we come back and hear uh, the word from Hosea. But here we are with uh, the second passage from, from Micah. We're in chapter 2. If you want to turn there, you'll pay, find it on page 776 and 777 in your pew Bible. 776 and 777. And again, last week, if you were here, you remember I invited us all to pretend that we were walking into a courtroom. Uh, that Micah chapter 1 was set up a lot like a courtroom drama. And so we were to hear there the Lord's indictment against His people. Today, I want to invite you to enter into a doctor's office. Okay? I want you to imagine that you're sitting in your doctor's office and you're about to receive bad news about your health. You sit there on the cold, butcher paper covered table, right? And your doctor looks you in the eye and she says to you, I have to be really honest with you. You're in very poor health. And if you don't do something about this like right now, it's going to get a lot worse. You ever had a doctor say something like this to you? Serious changes will be necessary if you hope to turn this around. But here's the thing. In this instance, in this hypothetical situation, she's not referring to something that's just randomly happened to you. This difficulty... The difficulty of the news is, is sort of compounded by the fact that she tells you, this is your fault. She looks you in the eye and she says, that pack of cigarettes you've been smoking every day for 20 years, that bad diet, those, those poor exercise habits, do you even ever exercise? She's questioning you as you're sitting there feeling very uncomfortable and nervous and even ashamed on that table. And she says, look, there's no one else to blame. This is on you. And again, if you don't make these significant lifestyle changes, and I mean right now, you're going to face disastrous consequences. Now, when something like that happens in a doctor's office, there are typically two ways people respond to that kind of news. The first is that they listen to her. They admit that, yeah, they've got a problem, and then they humbly ask for her counsel to help them change direction, to, 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 to address the problem. That's one way. Or, and unfortunately, this happens all too often, they just get really offended and angry at her. And they'll say something like, who are you to lecture me about my lifestyle choices? I happen to like the way I eat. I don't really feel like exercising. So leave me alone. It's my life and I'll live it the way I want to live it. Now maybe they'll say that to her face. Maybe they won't, but that's what they're thinking in their hearts. And they'll leave and nothing will change. And so in ignoring that counsel, they will soon suffer the consequences. The question that many of us in this room today need to reckon with is, which kind of person are you? I'm asking because I need to make a disclaimer about the message this morning, of the passage that we're about to look at, about the sermon. It's going to challenge and likely offend some of us, 
or many of us, it is going to offend you. Micah's preaching is full of rebuke. You got a taste of that last week if you were here. You're going to get a fire hose of it today. And here's what you need to understand, okay? The central message of Micah is this. God will make everything right. That's the central message. He will make everything right. But in order to do that, He's got to first confront us with what's wrong. So I told you last week that about 70% of this book is judgment. It's, a, it's the telling us what's wrong and what the serious consequences will be if we fail to do anything about that. And the other 30% is the hope and the, the joy of hearing how He's going to make all things right. But again, we're not going to get a whole lot of that today. We're, we're, this, is, this is in bulk, that 70%. There's a lot of rebuke in the passage today. And, and as we listen to that, and if that makes you uncomfortable, I mean, we, we don't live in a society that, that's too keen on hearing judgment, right? We don't even like the word judgment. You need to know this. It's a necessary part of God's process to bring about restoration. Rebuke is a necessary part of His process to bring about restoration and renewal. Just like your doctor's intent to bring about health is there. It's, it's genuine. Even though in order to do that, she's got to be direct with you and honest with you about your failures. The goal is health. Restoration is coming for those who will listen and respond appropriately, but you've got to be willing to listen to the bad news first. Just like in all of the Bible, good news is preceded by bad news. That's how you know it's good news. So in telling you all that, I want to say just as we progress today, don't give up, okay? I'm going to say things that might make you angry. Don't get angry. Don't tune out the Word of God and what it has to say to us because I think this is a word for us for sure and it's definitely from God. So don't get offended. Don't be unwilling to wait for the cure. It will come, but you got to go through the bad news first. These next two messages in Micah, today and then again, next week's Hosea, but we'll come back and we'll, we'll look at this passage one more time. We're going to be in chapters 2 and 3 today and two weeks from now. They both deal with injustice and oppression. And as I've already said, these are going to be needed challenges for many of us today who enjoy relative comfort and privilege. Much of what's being said here to the people and kind of the lifestyle and the attitudes of the people is something that we, we can relate to. But I also want to say this, there are others of us in this room who are among the poor who are among the marginalized and the vulnerable. And for you, this will be a message of hope. So my prayer all week, and even now, is this. May God grant you the discernment to, to know who you are and how to receive this. So with that said, let's look down at the text. I want you to look at chapter 2 of Micah, verse 1-5. through five. 
Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it's in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we're utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Look down at verse 8. Lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Chapter 3, look at verses 9-12. through 12. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. This is the Word of God. Here's the rebuke of the first two verses of chapter 2. He's saying God's people are consumed with profiting They're consumed with profiting even at the expense of the vulnerable. Look back at it again and see it. Do you see it there? Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it's in the power of their hands. What do you think about when you're laying awake in bed? You think about work? Are you thinking about more ways to make money tomorrow? And if you're thinking about work and you're thinking about ways in which you can make money the next day, do those devised plans entail schemes that might cleverly, even if legally, take from someone else in order to line your own pockets? That's what, that's what he's asking them to consider. And not just consider. He's basically pointing the finger and saying, this is what you're doing. Thinking about ways, even if legally, that are going to take from someone else in order to line your own pockets. I want you to note the contrast between this verse and Psalm 63, verses 5 and 6. Just listen to that. I'm going to read. This is, this is King David laying on his own bed. He says, My soul will be satisfied with you, Lord, as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you 
with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. The very different thought process going through King David in righteousness here as he lays on his bed. So the question I want us to consider is, are we like King David content to meditate on the goodness of God and be thankful as we lay awake in bed? Or are we too focused on what kind of monetary profit or career building maneuvers we'll be able to make tomorrow? It's significant to note that in the second half of verse 1, it says that this lining of the pockets occurs when the morning comes. They're thinking about it all night, and then when the morning comes, it says you, you do this, right? You do this. Now, it's significant that it's in the morning, not just because it's, it just immediately follows what's been thought about and devised, but it's another way of saying this happens in broad daylight. This isn't happening at night. You're thinking about it, but it, it happens in the daylight. It's, it's broad daylight. It's, it's, it's easy, you know, when you read something like this and you, and you hear words like wicked and schemes to think about this sort of uh, old man with long features and a curly mustache, right? He's got the top hat and the tails and the monocle and he's kind of... <laughs> you can think about that kind of an image, right? But this rebuke includes a kind of, 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 of oppression that was happening in the society, not just by those kinds of, you know, tycoon sneaky guys, but something that was just as much implicit as it was explicit. It happens in daylight. This isn't happening in some back alley somewhere. It's just the way business is done. You could walk out into the streets of Jerusalem and this is what, this is the business world. This is the marketplace. It's this devising. It's this oppression of the poor in order to line the pockets of the rich. It's speaking to an entire economic system that is both prevalent and the status quo. It's, get this, it's perfectly legal and it's perfectly normal. But there are innocent victims of the system. Again, look at chapter 2, verse 8. Lately, my people have risen up as an enemy, stripping the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. In other words, you're taking the robe of another. It's rich to them. It's all they've got. And they're trusting. They're, they're not expecting this. It's like an ambush. There's no thought of war. They're not expecting oppression, but it's just overtaking them. And the fingers being pointed at those who are devising this wickedness. This is what you're doing. Now, the taking of a robe or the or the or the seizing of a field. This was significant here in this society. It's, it's another way of saying that you're taking not just all that I have, but you're taking away my opportunity to make a living. This is an agrarian society. So, 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 so taking of somebody's house or taking of their field means taking of the opportunity that they have going forward to make a living not just for themselves, but for their family. So if you take that away from them, even if you take it away from them legally, it would severely cripple them and put them at a disadvantage. 
You say, well, how, how do you do that? How do you, how do you see someone's properly legally? Well, just then you do it just the same way that you could do it today. Maybe the weather hindered their crop and so they need to take out a loan to get through it, but they miss a payment. What do you do? Well, you just foreclose on them and you take the land. You repossess it. Or maybe through dishonest business practices or political means like, like raising taxes. Maybe you have the, the power and the authority to influence things like that or, or imposing exorbitantly high interest rates on them if they need to take a loan from you in order to make ends meet. You tilt the odds in your favor and grossly against them in such a way that they can't make ends meet and they can't get out of their predicament. The end of verse 8, again, you, you, you strip this from them. And there's a reason why God is saying to His people, those who are doing this, there's a reason why you can do it. You're in a position of power and privilege that they're not. That's what it means at the end of verse 1 when He says, you do this because the power is in your hand. There is a system of increasing inequality that's in place here in Jerusalem, that's in place here in Samaria at this time, that makes it all possible for some and entirely impossible for others. Now I want to show you something here about this idea of income equality. It, it always exists, but it, it exists now for us in ways that are greater than, than anything we've ever known in modern society. I want to put a graph up on the screen just to kind of put this in perspective for you. i got to point this way, don't I? No, it's not working, yes. There we go. This is a graph of income inequality in the United States over the last 50 years, okay? So within just a couple of years, roughly, think that this is within my own lifetime, all right? 50 years ago, the bottom 50% of people in our country in terms of income, represented by the red line, held about 20% of the income. They, they received 20% of the income annually. And the top 1% was down around 9%, all right? Now, even that, we could say, is unequal. If the top, if 50% of the people are receiving 20% of the income, it's not equal, right? But look at what's happened over the last 50 years. Somewhere around 25 years ago, those lines intersected, crossed, and split. So that now, in 2015, the top 1% of income earners, a very small group of people, are bringing in 25% of the income. And 50% of the people in our country, the bottom 50%, only bring home about 10% of that income. Now, I'm, I'm not putting this up here to make a political statement. I'm just putting it up here so you recognize that inequality and oppression is real. And it's real in our own culture as much or more as it was ever real in this culture. So what God has to say to 
oppressors in this passage is something that we need to listen to today. And as we listen to that, we need to take specific instruction from what these texts are telling us and really think through how to apply it. For example, look down at verse 9. Verse 9, again in chapter 2, talks about the women of my people being driven out from their delightful houses, their young children being taken away, God's splendor from them forever. This verse tells us that women and children are often among the most vulnerable and common victims of oppression and injustice. It also tells us that women and children, these particular peoples, have a place of, of particular interest and care in the heart of God. Do we, in, do we at all appreciate how incredibly difficult it is to be a low-income single mother or the child of a poor single parent? Some of you know exactly what that's like. I know. And many, many of you do. I want you to listen to a single mom speaking in a blog. This is something I just searched for in the internet and came up with this week. A single mom's blog. She says, I think about money all the time. I think about the bills that need to be paid. The things my kids need. And the fact that what's coming in currently is not enough to cover what needs to go out. We, if you were with us in the 9 a.m. hour, one of the key principles of, of, of financial stewardship was spend less than you make. And the reality is for, for a lot of people, that's way easier said than done. That's what she's saying. Every day is a list of choosing, of overdraft fees, of cancellation notices. Every moment is a feeling of defeat and a pang of failure. People like her might hear something like this. Hey lady, I'm evicting you. Why? Neighborhood's gentrifying and I can easily get 500 bucks more a month for this apartment that I'm getting from you. So, come up with the money or move. And when stuff like that happens, and it happens all the time, thousands of women and children, low-income women and children, are displaced every year. Every year. Because of that kind of selfish greed. Now let me ask this question. Is it perfectly legal for that landlord to do that? Yep. Is it in that landlord's economic best interests to do so? Yep. Is it wrong? God says, when my people do it, you betcha. That's what God's people were doing in the elite cities of Israel and Judah at this time. And God says, listen, God says, woe to you. Woe to you. doesn't matter to God that it's legal or normative. He calls it oppression. This was not in accordance with His law. His law had built-in protections for the poor. His law had built-in protections for those who found themselves in crushing debt. His law was to be their law. 
Theirs was to be a system of mercy. Not oppression. But they had failed miserably. Now, when we we read that and we think about that and we really consider what's going on here, and if we recognize that all of this was happening in the daylight, right? This was normative. This was just sort of the way things were. We have to see what God is saying about social oppression is more comprehensive than what we may often think. He, he's looking at something and, and there's, a, there's, this, there's this deeper, more comprehensive application that He's pressing on them than what we may often think. And that's why as we explore that, if we can unpack that a little bit, that's what makes this a far more challenging and convicting rebuke. That's why I gave you the disclaimer up front. It's not just the top 1% who are guilty of this, but in this society, and I think we could say in ours, generally just the more privileged and powerful of our society are also guilty. What does that mean? I don't know. I mean, maybe at least the top 50%. Look at verse 3. This is why I can say this and not just sort of be making my own statement. Verse 3, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I'm devising disaster. Not just against the 1%, not just against the rulers, against this family. He's saying there that all of you are at least implicitly responsible for the explicit actions of the oppressors. This is not an individual judgment. This is a corporate judgment. This is a societal judgment. And when we talk like that, when when God's Word talks like that, and we begin to talk like that in the church, I know this is where people become most uncomfortable with the conversation. Believe me, I've been pretty uncomfortable as I've been studying this this week. And in a sense, I get that uncomfortability. You might say this. You might say, how can I be responsible for the actions of another person? If I haven't explicitly oppressed anyone, if I haven't done that, I'm not aware of ways that I've done that, how can I be guilty and therefore how could you imply that I need to repent for someone else's sin? Not a bad question to ask. It's a common question that's being asked a lot in conversations that are going on within the church in our own day. And I'm guessing that the original recipients of this prophecy were asking similar questions. But God's answer, get this, God's answer through Micah was that oppression, again, happens on a societal level. Even when there's no sort of conscious awareness of it or a malicious intent intended by some, some clearly have malicious intent, but maybe others, they wouldn't identify that. But God's saying, this is societal. I'm judging the family here. Hear this. He wants us to be aware of our unquestioned participation in corrupt systems. So maybe you didn't raise the taxes. Maybe you didn't enact the economic policies. But, did you vote for the person who did? 
And if you voted for the person who did, was your, your motive for voting for that person attached to how those policies would just affect you without thinking about how they might have a bigger impact on the poor? Again, that's not a political statement. That, that could go any way in our, in our culture. Or even if you saw that impact, did you choose to look the other way? Were you silent about it? Did you proactively seek to help marginalized or vulnerable people or did you simply just say, sorry, but that's their burden to bear? Does your business or profession profit from the system of oppression? Church, I think we should ask ourselves this question directly. Are we cognizant of the state of the church broadly? Brothers and sisters in other parts of our city or other parts of our world, are we caring for them? Or are we just too busy building up our own comfortable churches and ministries? If you remember last week, we looked at Jesus' words to the spiritual goats when He said, look, to the extent that you didn't do this to the least of these, you didn't do it to Me. And the judgment He brought on them was, you're out. Right? When did we, when did we not care for, for, for you, Jesus? Did you care for your neighbor? Because the extent that you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to Me. Now I want to be clear that there's nothing in this passage and there's nothing in any other passage in Scripture that says that there's anything inherently wrong with economic gain. There's also nothing in any passage of Scripture that would tell you that you need to feel guilty because you've experienced gain or because you have certain privileges. We live in a culture that would tell you you need to feel guilty just because of you know privileges that you had nothing. The Bible doesn't do that. It doesn't do that. Here's what it does do. It calls us to be cognizant of the fact that those gains and those privileges do often come at the expense of others who lack the same opportunities and privileges that you have. Not because you've necessarily maliciously made it so. It's just a reality. Because we live in a broken world. So the question I think we need to be challenged with is, are we at least willing to acknowledge that? Are we willing to acknowledge that? Are we willing to see that if we have blessings, they come with a responsibility? We're supposed to use them for the glory of God. We're supposed to use them for the love of neighbor. To whom much is given, much is required. Does that make you uncomfortable? If, if it makes you uncomfortable, I, I just want to challenge you pastorally and lovingly to consider, consider whether your feelings are more in line with the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of God. That's the rebuke of Micah 2 and 3. 
Now, I just asked if you're feeling uncomfortable. It's interesting that in this passage, there's a retort from the people who are feeling uncomfortable. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. What do they say? Do not preach. Thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace isn't going to overtake us. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. The second half of verse 11. Yet they lean on the Lord and they say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster is going to come upon us. <laughs> here's Micah saying, here's what God says. And they're saying, don't, don't preach like that. Get that out. That kind of preaching doesn't belong here. Prophetic voices are difficult to hear. And because they're difficult to hear, they're often dismissed. That's a grave mistake, church. And how it happens is we say, don't preach like that. Don't bring that social gospel stuff into the church. Stop talking about justice issues and God's judgment. We're not like that. God's not like that. Now look, we're going to talk about that next time. As we come back to chapter 3 and chapter 2 in two weeks, there is a lot here. About half of the content here it has, has to do with what God has to say about the kind of preaching and the attitudes of those who listen to it that He is and He isn't pleased with in the church. And here's a spoiler alert. It's not going to be kind towards either the political and theological left or right. But we're just dipping our toe in this one today, okay? So here's, here's, here's what we're asking. If we're simply addressing the charge today that God's not interested in social issues, the answer in Micah 2 is crystal clear. Yes, He is. Yes, He is. Which brings the reckoning. God will bring an end to oppression. The oppressors are on a short lease here. Chapter 2, verse 3. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. You shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly. Now, the, this kind of reads weird in the English. He's not saying they will taunt you and they will moan. He's saying they will taunt you you should moan. And here's what you're going to say. We're utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How He removes it from me. Who's the He there? I don't know. It's either the Assyrians and the Babylonians who are, who are exacting this judgment on them, which is probably what most of them will see it as. Or maybe some of them are smart enough to see this is God. But this is what they're feeling. Our, 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 our lives are being upended here. Everything's being removed. Everything's being taken from us. An apostate gets our fields. And God says, therefore, you'll have no one to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Verse 10. Arise and go. 
This is no place to rest. Because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. Chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, because of you again, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. There's two promises of judgment here. The first is that God is going to send an oppressor for the oppressors. The Assyrians and the Babylonians are coming. And when they come, what he's saying is they will treat the rich among God's people as they deserve. What goes around comes around. Now there's a huge irony in these verses. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 4, notice that the oppressors then will finally understand how it feels to be oppressed. Right? They're crying out to God in this moment. We're being persecuted! This isn't fair! We're losing our inheritance. We're losing our way of life, our culture. This is unjust. This is a travesty. I saw a, a social media post earlier this week. It was a woman holding a sign at some, I don't know, some protest somewhere. But her sign said this, when you're used to privilege, equal treatment can feel like oppression. I think that's what, what's happening here. Right? They're not being treated any differently than they've been treating anyone else. But when you're used to privilege, that can feel like oppression to you. It's really just equal treatment. And God says, that lament... That's hypocritical. This is well-deserved. Don't call it persecution. This is not an unjustified affront to your religious or civic liberty. It's my judgment. And he further says, and I will bring my people back from this oppression. There's always this promise that they would be brought back after they were carried off. But he says here, for those of you who haven't repented, when you return, you'll get nothing. I will give your portion of the land to the ones that you treated so poorly. And that's what happens. This is a real historical reality. When, when they came back into the land, that land was divided up amongst the people equally. And according to this, the rich amongst them who had oppressed them and not repented, they didn't, they didn't partake in that. So it's a, it's a historical reality, but there's also a spiritual truth here with eternal significance. It's God saying, depart from me, I never knew you. You're, 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 you're saying, God's not like this. God's in the midst of us. No, no disaster's going to come upon us. And then God's saying, no, it will. And when you come back, if you haven't repented, you get nothing. Don't complain. I, I didn't know you. Don't cry to me. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now I know this is really difficult to hear. It's convicting. It's bad news. But remember, we need to hear the bad news before we can receive the good news. And there is good news here. There's good news here for those who've been the victims of oppression. And even for those who are willing to repent from their oppressive ways. After rebu rebuke comes restoration. 
And we do see that here in this text. Look at chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. We'll see a picture here of the Redeemer. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gates, and going out by it, their king passes on before them. The Lord is at their head. So here's the hope. Here's the hope. There's a shepherd coming. In the midst of all this sin, in the midst of all this judgment, there is a shepherd coming and He will gather His faithful people together and He will lead them to freedom. He will lead them to a dawning of a new day. Now for Micah and his hearers, this was something that was 700 years yet in the future. For us, it's something that happened 2,000 years ago in the past. Take your thumb and just flip over a page or so to Micah chapter 5. Verse 2, and we'll get a glimpse. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. And when He came, He declared Himself to be the Good Shepherd. And He said, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor, the poor have good news preached to them. And He said this, and blessed is the one who is not offended by Me. That's Matthew 11, 5 and 6. Yet the rulers of Israel at the time of Christ had just returned right back to their old ways and they were offended by Jesus. They were deeply offended by Jesus and His message of repentance, His message of liberation, and they conspired together and they said, we got to deal with this Jesus. And what they do? Think Micah 2. This is what they did. They stripped Him of His robe. They said, let's oppress him and take up a taunt song against him. Let's put a crown of thorns on his head and nail him to a cross. Let's ruin him. And the remarkable thing about Jesus, this is what makes him the good shepherd, is that he willingly subjected himself to that oppression. He let them do this to him because he said, because he said it was the only way he could save them all of them. Not just the oppressed, but also the oppressors. Jesus took the woe upon Himself. He took the consequences on Himself. By dying on the cross, He absorbed the wrath of God for His people's sin and set the captives free. That's the good news. So this morning, if you're burdened by the weight of unjust oppression, 
the good news is that Jesus Christ is making everything right. He's making everything right. His kingdom has come. And He will finally put an end to all injustice and all oppression when He comes back and restores all things. When He truly makes all things new. If you're feeling the conviction this morning of sin, there's hope for you. Repent. Turn to Jesus. Believe in the wrath-bearing finality of His death on the cross for you and receive forgiveness. He'll make you new. And church, if we're new in Christ, if He has made us new, it means we've got to live like that's true. We've got to become instruments of peace and justice in this world as He is. We still live in a world that is broken and full of oppression, but He's making a people new. He's calling His people here to be different, right? And if He's made us new in Christ, we are different. We can't accept the oppression of the world, and treat one another with disdain. What does it look like for the church to model the justice of God? What does it look like? Look at Acts chapter 4. It's on the screen. Acts chapter 4. This is the people that Jesus has made new. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to Him was His own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it to the apostles' feet or at the apostles' feet. This is the fruit of righteousness that Jesus came to bring about in His people. This isn't political socialism. This isn't some worldly progressive mindset. This is love. This is a new heart that says, to whom much has been given, much is required. Are there people in my community of faith who need to be blessed by the things that God has given me to steward and bless others with, and they act on it. They act on it. This was not within a society where that was happening politically at large around them. Neither will it be that way for us, regardless of what political system exists outside of here. This is God's call to His people. This is kingdom values. This is love of God and neighbor in action. 
This is God making all things new. And the question for us is, will we live in it? Father, I pray for us. I pray that You'd help us to consider what needs to be applied here today. Father, I, I, You know my heart. You know as I've wrestled with this text that I don't presume to... I don't presume to lay any particular application on anyone that isn't from You. But Lord, we need You to tell us what do we need to hear. Those of us who are poor and marginalized and powerless in this room, Lord, I pray just undergird them with the hope of Jesus Christ. And those of us, and I'll include myself, who, are, who, who have privilege, who have power, who have resources, Lord, Oh, that we might use them for Your glory and not for our own glory. Teach us Your ways. Humble our hearts. Make us a people after You. May You say of us, not, my judgment is coming. But may You say of us, because my judgment has fallen on my own Son and You've been made new, well done, good and faithful servants in how you've lived out the life I've given you. Teach us this week to repent in humility, confess, and submit to you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.